This is Women's Tech Radio, a show on the Jupiter Broadcasting Network interviewing interesting women in technology, exploring their roles and how they're successful in technology careers. I'm Paige. And I'm Angela. So Angela, today we're interviewing Kaya. She's from Keyboardio, which is a badass software company that is um, trying to reinvent the way that we use keyboards. Um, And we talked to her about the Kickstarter process, the open hardware process, the open software process, and like how she got involved in all that. And it's a really fascinating interview. And before we get into that interview, I just want to mention that you can support Women's Tech Radio by going to patreon.com forward slash today. That is a general bucket of Jupiter Broadcasting support. We have a bunch of other shows, but specifically, if you go there and you donate, it is also contributing to Women's Tech Radio. And we get started by asking Kaya what she's up to in tech today. I'm Kaya Decker, and I'm currently the co-founder and CEO of a company called Keyboardio. We make premium ergonomic keyboards that are also open hardware, so they're super hackable. We give you the firmware source, we give you schematics for the electronics, um, and still we're selling it fully assembled as a finished product, but at the same time, it's also open hardware. So if you want to open it up and hack it, you can. So open hardware keyboard, like how did you get there? So my co-founder, who's also um, my husband, um, had had really bad wrists and cubital tunnel, like a repetitive stress injury um, from typing too much. He professionally had been a programmer for most of his life and had tried out something like, I don't know, 20 or 30 different ergonomic keyboards. And none of them were really working for him. And so he started out as sort of a hobby project, trying to build his own that would be tailored specifically to him um, and have a a working keyboard that wouldn't make his wrists hurt too much. And he started sort of spending more time on this. And I was just getting out of business school um, and was trying to kind of what I wanted to do next. I knew I didn't want to go back to the companies that I had worked at before and thought, hey, we might be able to like spin this into a business. And keyboards in particular were really interesting to me, mostly from a, a kind of blank slate design perspective where it's this thing that most of us are using for, you know, eight hours plus almost every day um, that we literally have our hands on every day. It's a very sort of intimate long-lasting relationship with an object, but it's not something that had seen a lot of design or really thought put into the design. Innovation, yeah. It's, you know, the the basic keyboard design, like it's based on what a typewriter looked like in the 19th century, which was based on how you could build something in the 19th century. And, um, you know, the technology has come a lot farther. Our understanding of what makes for good design has come a lot farther. Um, And, you know, there's no reason not to make something that would be better. So I was really attracted to the idea of being able to rethink, you know, this tool that we use all the time. And, you know, what would it be like if you were to start over a little bit? And we ended up with something, it's a little weird, a little different. So the materials are different. We have an enclosure kind of made out of wood as opposed to plastic or aluminum. The shape is really different. It's 
based around originally research on different handshapes and what keys people can reach easily and then iterated, I don't know, probably two dozen times before we ended up where we are today. And it's fully programmable. So it's trying to be a little bit smarter as a piece of hardware as opposed to just sort of a dumb input device. Right. And, you know, specifically, like one of the first things I pick up when I see your keyboard is that it's it's the the left and the right hand are are separated. They're broken in the middle, like if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've seen Microsoft put out a keyboard like that. But what they did is they took a standard keyboard and just broke it in half, essentially, you know, like and moved it at an angle. Whereas yours, um, the actual keys are placed differently um, with more more focus on thumb work than any other keyboard that I've seen. Yeah, so we've we've put the keys in columns because that's the way, you know, if you look at your hands and sort of bend your fingers, they, they move in a column. They don't move in this sort of strange diagonal method, the staggered layout of a traditional keyboard. Right. And, you know, we've actually somewhat subtly arced them um, to follow the actual arc that your fingers make. And right. it's it takes a bit of retraining to follow an ergonomic layout. But once you do, it's, it just feels a lot more natural, um, which makes sense. It's building something designed around how your hands work as opposed to just following the sort of cargo culting, the same thing that we've done for a very long time. Now, I have a question. Um, it is reprogrammable, mm -hmm. but when I was taking typing classes back in like seventh and eighth grade, um, mm -hmm. I learned some history about keyboards, and that is that they used to be in alphabetical order. And this may or may not be accurate. It's this, accurate. Okay. And that it was scrambled onto the keyboard because people were too fast. They learned it. They, they knew, you know, the, the prediction of where the letters would be based on the alphabet was too fast. So they scrambled them up to slow people down because the technology couldn't keep up. Well, I think technology can keep up now. And um, I'm wondering... Have you, well, because it's reprogrammable, I think anybody, right, can change how the the letters are, but have you done any specific keyboards with it in alphabetical order instead of scrambled? Or Dvorak or anything? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of stories. It's, it's actually really fascinating, the history of, you know, why people stuck with QWERTY when it isn't a particularly good design. Mm -hmm. um, I still type QWERTY just because, you know, I been typing it for decades and for me yeah learning a new layout wasn't going to be enough faster enough more efficient sure. um for me the limiting factor isn't usually how fast i can type it's how fast my brain goes and so until i learn how to think faster um <laughs> I, i'm not <laughs> gonna worry too much about optimizing for speed but mm -hmm. yeah we definitely some of the people we've had beta testing are people who use Dvorak or other alternative key layouts. There's actually like a really fascinating group of people who have a community online where they will basically track all of their key presses and then feed it into a program to figure out their own personal um, custom layout that oh, minimizes finger movement. And so you could have your own thing that's completely different from anyone else's. Otherwise, QWERTY is pretty standard. Dvorak is pretty common. And then there's something that's sort of similar to Dvorak, but based on a more recent and, and bigger 
corpus of data used to figure out where to put the keys called Colmac. And that's actually built into Mac OS and other things as well. So it's pretty popular, um, not as popular as Dvorak and of course not nearly as popular as QWERTY. But those are those three plus one other alternative are built into the firmware by default. And then if you want to you know, change what any particular key does, you're able to do that as well. Now, if I go to keyboard.io, mm-hmm. um, there is a lot of information on here and it shows the keyboard. But I'm wondering what I don't see is or and or are you planning to put out a 10 key? We've thought about it. It's right now we are just about to ink a contract for manufacturing our first product, the Model 1, which is a, a what's called a 60% keyboard. Um, it doesn't have a separate 10 keypad. Um, and I think once we've got that produced or a little further down the line, we're going to really kind of look at the product roadmap and figure out what comes next. Um, right now, it's just we're a small company and we don't quite have the resources. To sure, sure. And, yeah. you know, honestly, if the keyboard were better and more functional, easier to reach the numbers, maybe 10 key, maybe to eliminate that need, which I think is what Paige uh, was kind of like snobbily kind of uh, <laughs> <laughs> implying with her. Uh, uh, you didn't even comment, but um, no, you did comment. You said you and your 10 keys. Or whatever. No, it's I have a lot of friends that I've gotten in this argument with because like I have friends who won't buy laptops that don't have 10 keys. Oh, well, you can and always get a USB 10 key. That's my argument. Right. Or okay. like how often yeah. <laughs> do you actually use a 10 well, key? Well, see, that's the thing. Like if if your work is in numbers, yeah. you know, then it is very handy. Yeah, like, if you're an accountant or some something. Things, well, even some things I do, like I would really prefer a 10 key. So, yeah, I was just curious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do have a numlock mode that turns kind of the right-hand side into basically a 10 key. Ah, uh, okay. Which is definitely, like, I'm the one who gets stuck doing all the accounting, and <laughs> I switched to that for um, for doing that. It's easier. That actually makes even more sense than a separate 10 key. Yes, yes, it does. You're right. So so you've been kind of on this journey. What was it like to go from kind of a, a business background kind of into this crazy tech world? And, I mean, you dove in deep. Like, this is hardware, software, open source on both sides. Like it's a pretty complex, crazy project. <laughs> yeah, I've never been one for for s- just sticking my toe in. I'm, I'm kind of a jump all the way in kind of kind of girl. Um, I'd always been interested in tech. Um, I went to a like technology magnet focused high school and then I went to um, MIT, which has a very strong engineering culture and a lot of I would say so yeah yeah (laughs) a lot of people building things like for fun on the weekends and in the evenings and I've always followed that um and been interested in that I ended up sort of in business almost somewhat accidentally like I'd, I'd been a physics major in undergrad and thought that you know I'd been sort of pushed that way by teachers and so on and I thought, okay, this is what I'll do as a career. And then I had sort of realized junior year that I didn't have, one, the the type of mind that works really well doing physics research. And two, I didn't really have the, the temperament to do, to live an academic type of life. Like you, you need to be a type of person who can work by themselves and be very driven and work 
in a you know a very hardworking but in, in many ways a very slow paced environment and that just wasn't I'd realized by that time that wasn't the kind of environment where I did my best work or where I was happiest I I prefer working with other people like things that are much more fast paced um even if you're working on something that's not you know as fundamental as understanding new things about the universe I'm just happier when I'm working on 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 fast paced things with a lot of different people to bounce ideas off of and to learn from. And so I kind of <laughs> pivoted, I guess, into, into doing then technology investment banking, which was paid very well, but I, I sort of left as soon as I got my first bonus check and then <laughs> management consulting for a while um, and then software marketing for ending up doing this. And it's it's interesting. Like there's definitely things that you get used to when you're working for large companies or on behalf of large companies that just don't apply in the startup world where um, you have to learn to get by with a lot fewer resources when you're a startup and there's no one a lot of times where you can go out and you know find the person in such and such department who knows about something because you are the such and such department. You're every department. Yeah, but it's been great. Like we relocated to the San Francisco Bay Area, which has been amazing just in terms of there's a community of hardware startups out here and, you know, anything from you need to borrow a part last minute or, you know, getting someone to take a second look at your boards and try and figure out why they're not working or, you know, getting advice on how to choose a manufacturer, whether or not you know, paying for a sourcing agent is worth it. Like anything from the business end to big architectural type decisions to, you know, just day-to-day prototyping help. Like it's been so amazing to be around so many really talented, really interesting people working on hardware. It's, it's really been amazing. Yeah. That's, that's really neat that like the community would still play such a role. You'd think hardware is so much more of a I don't know, a set thing, like that there's more like set ways to do it. But I guess, you know, it's it's just as mutable as software. Yeah, it's much more so now than it was 20 years ago or even, you know, five or 10 years ago. And I, I think it's still shaking out a little bit, you know, historically at least, like hardware was something that took huge investment and had very low returns and was something that, you know, you could only do if you were a big company or had a lot of money. And the prototyping phase of things has gotten so much easier with it being very accessible to have rapid prototyping technologies like 3D printing or laser cutters and CNC mills and so on being much more accessible due to things like tech shop or hacker spaces where they have these machines available and let people from the community access them to, you know, things like Arduino or Teensy or other microcontrollers and environments where, you know, the the first bit of the embedded programming is done for you. Um, yeah. And so you don't have to really start from scratch. You can hook together things and, and do a quick prototype without having to put in quite as much of an investment as you used to. And, you know, things like DigiKey or Adafruit where you know, being able to access, 
you know, I need 10 of a part is, is very easy and affordable now. Um, and you don't have to buy, you know, an entire reel of a component to, to get it. You can find pretty much any component you want and order it in pretty much any quantity that you want. So the prototyping phase is a lot easier. Yeah, it's like we're finally catching up with hardware where we've been with software for a long time. Like we're building these hardware frameworks almost that kind of piece together in a way that makes things fast and, yeah. and easy and accessible. Like, uh, you know, how many, I've seen so many things around Portland or other places where it's like, hey, come over and work on Arduinos for the day. And like, you know, just seeing like little kids up to big adults, like playing with hardware for the first time is really fascinating. Yeah, and it's, it's amazing. I mean, that's one of the reasons we wanted to make our product open source was that getting people, like like the moment you, you know, whenever you have a programming language that you're learning and you get Hello World to work and when it's like your first time programming anything, it's a really magical feeling that's like, I got the computer to do this thing. And when you do it in hardware, when you, you know, get a, a light pattern to flash up or do things like that, it's it's even more magical. It's it's a tangible piece of the world that you're controlling um, through the code that you're writing. And it's a really, really awesome feeling. Yeah, I totally agree. I This winter I played with my my Raspberry Pi and some relays for the first time and like made mm-hmm. some lights light up. And it was like, as, as inspiring as Hello World is, this was like even more like, whoa. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think the question for hardware is like, the prototyping phase, like we're finally catching up and it's getting from, you know, your first working prototype into production, which is, you know, obviously not something that every project wants, but if you're trying to build a company and build products, you know, you do eventually have to make the change away from, you know, 3D printing and, you know, hooking things together, like with cables to an Arduino and so on, you have to make a fundamental shift in the technologies you're using to move to even small scale mass production. And that's something where there's a bunch of different people trying to figure out how to make it easier and make it better, but it's still just very complicated that there's, you know, not only do you have all these systems where the changes you make to, you know, your electrical layout are gonna make your actual physical hardware layout change. And, you know, that involves, you know, you might need to get mechanical engineering skill and electrical engineering skill and industrial design type of skill all involved just to make what seems like it should be a really small change, which, I mean, that's a, that's a hard problem. And then figuring out, well, what does that do when you take it into production? How does that change things? And very small changes can make very big changes um, and very big costs down the line, which is yeah, your margin for error is, is very small. Yeah. And it's something from software where I think people have gotten so used to agile or other sort of, you know, sprint type of make quick changes in small increments and keep building on that. And it's not something that transfers over to hardware necessarily as well. Yeah. Which is frustrating as someone who I don't know, like, like, likes being able to, to fool around and try out different things and um, realizing that there's much more kind of top-down planning that you have to do is not necessarily how people have trained to do it. Yeah, you have to give a pivot for polish. 
yeah, that's a great way of putting it. So um, in that vein, you guys ran an amazingly successful Kickstarter, originally reaching for $120,000 goal. You hit six hundred and fifty. Um, what was that like to go through? Yeah. What are some of the challenges that you've had afterwards or during? Like, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, we. it was an amazing experience on Kickstarter. Like, especially as the person who ends up being in charge of the business stuff, there's always the primary question in my mind before we did the Kickstarter is like, I think there's a market for this. Like, we've got a bunch of people on our mailing list. Like, people seem to think it's really interesting. Um but does anyone actually want this? Like you don't really trust that people will want a product until they put in their credit card number. Um, And so that was great. It sort of took this thing that I'd been worrying about for months um, and sort of just eliminated it really quickly. It's like, yeah, there are a lot of people who kind of get what we're trying to do and see why we're trying to do it that way. And yeah, the whole Kickstarter experience was was really cool. We did a cross-country road trip from Boston, where we'd used to live, to San Francisco and stopped at makerspaces just about every day and did little meetups talking about, you know, here's how you could build your own keyboard with the materials and tools that are in this makerspace and, you know, letting people put their hands on our product like it's it's a somewhat weird and different product and so being able to put your hands on it actually see it actually try it out is the time when a lot of people sort of get it for the first time and it was also kind of a great way like kickstarters are or any crowdfunding it's a lot of work where you have people writing you every day and you have to manage you know are you doing ads and there's there's all this stuff you have to kind of manage and being able to have something that we were doing every day that you know took the focus away from this hyper focus on you know this campaign and let us look and see what people were doing at different makerspaces was really cool and we were lucky that it was sort of something that was on brand for us i guess that you know we are open hardware we did you know, come out of kind of a hobby maker type of place. But honestly, it's just, it's always so cool to see like what people are making and what people are doing and talk to people who do cool things and put cool things together. How big is your team? Is it just you and your husband and some 1099? It's, yeah, we've floated up and down. Like we don't have quite enough work in any one discipline to have another full-time person coming on but we have had in the past full-time contractors from um currently i think it's we are we have a friend of mine who's working on ee um and she's i don't know like it'll be a couple of weeks contract probably um we're pretty close to being done with the electrical um and we've had people helping out with industrial design and mechanical as well at different points in the past. So it's, I don't know, I think probably peak size would be like five people. And, you know, sometimes it's just the two of us. So this is fascinating, like the the very cool story. Um, I don't know. I was wondering, um, so you said there's kind of embedded software for this. Is it, um, do you guys actually run an embedded 
like processor in the keyboard? Like, is there something it's actually running on, like Arduino or Linux or whatever? The chip is uh, an Atmel chip. It's an AT Mega 32U4, which is the same thing that's in an Arduino Leonardo. So we're compatible. It's not technically an Arduino because we're not buying a right. board from Arduino, but we're what they call at least Arduino at heart, where essentially what we've done is take the Arduino and squish it onto our own board and you know, made a couple little changes, but um, it's compatible with the Arduino um, developer environment. So right now, like I can just pull up the Arduino IDE, use it to make changes to the firmware and use that to, to flash the keyboard, which is cool. Like when we're trying to decide what architecture to use, um, we'd actually originally been using something else and ended up switching over um, to this branch of Arduino because you just, you know, if you, you're going to have to have some kind of processor anyway, like why not pick one that has this huge ecosystem of other people, you know, writing code and making devices that are compatible with it. So yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, making that approachable is huge. Yeah. So uh, just one final question for you before we get out of here. I would say, oh, I have two actually. First, I would love to know what you what you work in day to day for tools. I love to know other people's stacks, like what kind of tools are you using? Uh, you mentioned the Arduino IDE. Uh, is there anything else that kind of keeps you going day to day? You know, especially I'm always interested in the business stack because I don't touch that most of the time. We do, I, I guess, sort of a mix of ad hoc tools and um, otherwise available tools. I would say the most important tool that we use is Slack, which I'm sure you hear a lot. It's great for communication, you know, both within our team with um, investors and contractors. And I think that might have actually been one of the first, you might be the first person to bring Slack up on the show. Oh, okay. Well, it's a great tool. I'm happy to <laughs> evangelize about it. Um, it's a, a team communication tool and it's an example of really good design where it sort of sets the norms for communication being friendly and kind of fun, um, but also very easy to, it, it's designed by the team that had made Flickr back in the day, um, or a lot of the same team anyway. And it, it's really software sort of made with love. Yeah, it really, it's a fantastic tool. I, I'm in Slack every day and um, I agree. I think it's interesting because in my mind, like as a super old nerd, it's like IRC with user yes. friendliness. Yes. But super useful. Yeah. We use Hackpad for a lot of other things that don't quite fit into Slack in terms of communication. So um, daily to-do lists. We've done, we've tried out probably most of the tools that are out there like Trello and so on for keeping track of things and product management type tools. Mm-hmm. And every time we sort of just end up reverting back to Excel or Google Sheets um, in terms of they don't add enough, the complexity that they add doesn't add enough value to, to be worth it. And then uh, some of the mon more mundane things like, you know, for payroll and accounting and stuff, I use Zero and... Zen Payroll and all these SaaS providers, which are 
great and definitely much easier to use than some of the things that I'd been using even a couple years ago. That's a that's a neat stack. I like that. Um, Slack is very cool. I definitely encourage people to check that out. Yeah, I actually just signed up for the. There's a. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's just women in tech stack. It's a a Slack. It's an invite only. But well, you can apply for an invitation, mm-hmm. and then you get invited. And the community has been really great so far. They're very friendly, and like there's a lot of resource sharing and just kind of general like helping each other out, which has been really cool. Um, cool. And my last question before we mm-hmm. ramble on anymore is uh, looking at at the future of kind of what's happening in in technology, be it hardware or software, or what gets you the most excited? I I think the thing that excites me the most is the fact that there are companies out there that are taking things that we already have technologies for and really applying a lot of thought and design to them. I mean, Slack is an example of that where, you know, HipChat had been around there for a long time. IRC has been around for decades, but um, you know they they aren't adding a lot of new functionality. They're just taking a user experience that hadn't been very good and transforming it into something that's awesome. Sounds like Apple. Um, yeah, <laughs> a lot of people make that argument for things like Airbnb. Like, really, it's just originally it was Craigslist, but ten percent better. Right. Yes, and focused. Um, and focused. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and Uber. You know, Uber is just a cab service. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a trend, you know, as a user, I completely appreciate. And it's it's starting to come into more enterprise tools as well. Like we just put in a pre-order for a Glowforge, which is a laser cutter, which, you know, is something that is a, it's a great tool to have. But traditionally it cost $10,000 and you ended up spending about a third to a half of your time with it trying to fix problems with different issues with it and you know it's they're coming out with a laser cutter at a lower price point but that it's also supported by software that takes away a lot of the pain points of of using this tool and so this is something that's you know it's a prototyping tool it's not used by consumers for the most part but they're still taking that philosophy and you know applying it to that i think people's expectations in terms of design of come up a lot and that's an amazing thing. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women's Tech Radio. Remember you can go to jupiterbroadcasting.com for the show notes as well as a full transcription and you can find us on Twitter at HeyWTR. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. If you'd like to tell us, you can use the contact form on the website or email us at WTR at jupiterbroadcasting.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at HeyWTR. Thanks for listening. <laughs>